Welcome to episode 155 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. You know what time it is. It is. It's question cast time. Question cast. I love it. That was a nice little song yell thing you just did there. <laughs> Thank you. That's the traditional question. Question cast melody. But before we jump into some exciting questions, I'm excited because it sounds like you got some epic affirmations and denials or one or the other, but I'll leave it up to you. Dealer's choice. What do you want to start with today? I'll start with the easy one. So I'm affirming a new book that just came out, which is published by Baker uh, Academic, and it's called The Story of Creeds and Confessions. Um, I haven't read it yet, so it might sound a little weird that I'm affirming a book I haven't read. But, How dare you, sir? Uh, the book is by my um, my patristics professor from seminary, Donald Fairbairn, and uh, also by Ryan Reeves, who is another professor uh, who taught at Gordon-Conwell. He's taught at Reformed Theological Seminary. Um, and those two scholars put together tells me that this book is already going to be amazing. So check it out. It's really good. Um, you know, I've read a tiny bit of it. But Dr. Fairbairn really is like the peak performance as far as like evangelicals who are studying patristics. So it's uh, it's it's going to be phenomenal. I'm sure that it's going to be awesome. For those who are not as well versed in the words you were just using there, define patristics so people know what you're talking about. So patristics is always really hard to define, but typically it's going to be everybody from kind of the close of the New Testament uh, so, so non-apostolic writers from like 70, 80 on um, to maybe like 450 or 500, depending on who you ask. Most people would say that Augustine is kind of like the bridge character between the patristic era and the beginning of the medieval era. I would actually probably put it a little bit later, but like 400, 500, somewhere in there is pretty good. I don't know why, but when you were describing that, that definition, the only thing that came to my mind is wouldn't it be sweet if like they sold like playing cards that were of the patristics. Yeah. Like trade, like uh, baseball card style. Yeah. Like they had uh, no, not special powers, but like, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I was going there. Somehow Harry Potter also flashed in my mind, you know, like with the, yeah, like the chocolate frog cards. Yeah. That's exactly. what I have in mind. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a great idea. Somebody yeah. should do it. They'd have like ratings that are like insults and it'd be like six cool nickname five yes like athanasius the black dwarf yes i'm like my favorite yeah mission aware or confessional aware. i'm looking at you guys yeah make it happen yeah what about you what do you got for an affirmation today i also got a really quick one i'm doubling down on an affirmation that i made before we're going to be jumping in the scriptures tonight as we look at a couple of questions and for me my go-to when i really want to get a good sense for what the scripture says in a really brief and concise way is NASB. NASB is beautiful. It's also for me like the go-to version when I want to compare it against what I usually read or yeah. what is, is being preached from. So I'm going to affirm again this app called Literal Word because there was just an update to the app. It's even more beautiful than ever. It's really sleek. It looks fantastic in dark mode. And it's a wonderful NASB app for whether you just want to get something that's simple and you just want to read the scriptures without kind of all the attendant notation, 
Or if you want to jump into study, it has all these great modes, all these great word searches, highlighting so many new things that just came out in this new version. So go check out Literal Word. It's a great way to engage with the NASB on your mobile device of your choice. Nice. Nice. So it's denial time because it sounds like you've got a denial that's going to rock our worlds. It is going to rock your world. So oh, this is great. This this uh, denial requires a little bit of a story. So Ashley and I were watching some television on uh, Amazon Prime, right? So you know, like, so we watch Amazon Prime through our cable box. So when you like exit out of Amazon Prime, it jumps back to whatever channel you were on on cable. And so we were watching a show and we finished and we exited out and Family Feud came up. Now, Family Feud is one of those fun shows that like no matter when it comes on, you just sort of sit and watch it a little bit, mostly because like you can kind of play along. But also there's just enough stupidity and dumbness on that show that it's engaging and entertaining. (laughs) So we're sitting there watching. And the first part was that uh, there was a family that we'll just say... um, their last name was Flanagan, but it was very clear that they were not Irish. So I was a little bit confused about that. But the category was uh, things that you might ask your friend to take a whiff of to see if they're see if it's disgusting, <laughs> which is a hyper specific category. And so it's got yeah. like the things you'd expect, like rotten milk or rotten food, your shoes, maybe like your room. But then... You know, like the one that nobody wants to say, but everybody is thinking. What, what would you say this is? The the <laughs> category that's left. I don't know, because there's too much at risk for me here, because I want to say a couple of things, but I'm afraid you're going to be like, no, I wasn't I wasn't even thinking of that at all. What all right, are you talking well, I'll, about? I'll spare I'm you the, abstain. the potential awkwardness. So the answer that they were looking for, and this wasn't the number one answer, but the answer that was remaining on the board was was a you know they they ask a survey right and people give their answers and then they have to take similar categories of answers and like aggregate them into right. a single thing so the category was basically revolving around like when someone passes gas you say hey take a whiff of this right <laughs> but it was like they tried to pick the worst possible uh. way to describe like this category so that process the name of the the name of the answer was my farting butt (laughs) so there's a number of things here that i think are probably off first of all you know like every guy has been in a college dorm and passed gas and said catch a whiff of this right but nobody i don't think has ever said can you smell my butt Right. You ask them to smell the fart, not your butt. And then the second thing is the way they phrased it. It wasn't like my farted butt. Like it wasn't smell my butt after I farted. It smelled my farting butt. So it was like smell my butt in the process of farting. And it was it was just like of all of the different ways you could have said this this answer. This was the least realistic and least appealing one. It's almost like you are parsing Greek when you're describing that. I know. <laughs> like Present, active, indicative, parts. participle. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I'm glad I didn't speak because I was, that's basically where I was going with that. But yeah. I was trying to keep this from, so we wouldn't have to put the little E mark next to this episode. But man, that is incredible. So what are you denying exactly? The whole thing? Just the expression of it or the fact that like that was a legit category because it seems like a little bit too much of a crossover. Isn't that a bridge too far to cross? Like from going from the idea of 
rotting or spoiled food. I know they're not exactly the same to this idea of like, yeah, smell my butt. Yeah. I, I think I'm denying the, you know, the guy who made that answer had like one job. Take, take all of these answers (laughs) that have to do with smelling someone's flatulence and distill it into like a single (laughs) phrase that explains all of those answers. And he got it completely wrong because you, you don't smell people's butts. You smell their farts. So it was it was just one of those moments. So I'm denying whoever that guy was. I don't know who, uh, but that guy. I'm denying that guy. The only thing that beside that makes this more funny, besides like the subject matter itself, is I can tell like how serious you are in denying this. Yeah, like, you're you're way more mature than I am because you're able to say this with a very straight face. <laughs> I've been practicing for like three days now. And express again that this is this is dire, people. You need to smell the right thing. We need to yeah. get this under control. It's true. So now you can just when you're mad at someone, you'd be like, "Yeah, well, smell my farting butt." <laughs> it does sound like an insult. It sounds like something from like Monty Python. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Like that French guy from the. That's castle. what I was thinking. Yeah, you and I are of the same mind. We are. What about you? What are you denying? Mine also comes with a story. There you go. So I'm so glad that you had the same thing. So let me tell the, this little account first, because it will culminate in crescendo in what I hope is a grand denial. The church that I attend is going through this process where they're redoing their pictorial directory. I'm pretty pro-directory. But this time what they decided to do was they want to hire an outside company. It's the same company, actually, that does the photo shoots for schools to come in and to do all the pictures. So we schedule a time, we show up at the church and my wife fills out like a little card as we are waiting. And it says, you know, put the names of the people that are going to be in the picture and your contact information, all that good stuff. We finish that and we are ushered into this second room where they have set up like this little studio for them to take pictures. And the, the person, the photographer who's taking the pictures, this guy is overwhelmingly nice. Then like the nicest photographer I've ever met. He's, He's making jokes, but he's not corny. He's interested in who we are, but he's not creepy. He's doing a really good job of, in some ways, making it seem normal what we're about to do, even though he admits that taking pictures is a really strange thing. He's going to pose us. So, of course, we get posed in like lots of strange ways. Like it, Some of them make it look like we're trying to shoot like the cover of like a 1980s gospel album with Sandy Patty. <laughs> so there's like some really strange pictures. That in and of itself might be reason enough for this story being funny, but... Something happens at the beginning of this picture-taking experience that I could not imagine was going to take place. And then basically colors and clouds the entire process such that I can't think of anything except this now when I think back on the whole thing that occurred. And that is, right as we go to take the pictures, my wife, whose name is Jen, goes to put her purse down. I go immediately to the stool. That's the center of where the photography is going to take place. And in that moment, my back is to the photographer. And so I hear him say, Jen, and he says something. And so I assume that he's talking to her. When I turn around, I realize after like a quick second that he's actually talking to me. And so for whatever reason, this guy gets the card of our names. He looks at the two names and says, there's a dude here and a woman here. The woman is definitely named (laughs) Jesse. So... The thing about the experience from that on, from that point on is that it happened so quickly and so strangely that I couldn't even get my bearings before. Like I kind of acknowledged what he was saying, but it was more like, wait, are you talking to me or to my wife? And then we got in too deep and I couldn't stop it. 
And you know how it is if you're ever in a place where you're taking a picture and there's a photographer actually directing you, this is a time where they're actually giving you specific instructions. Because yeah. there's more than one person, they have to say your name over and over and over again. So, oh, so you didn't correct Susan, them? No, we got in too deep. <laughs> and then we got... And then... So we've got 20 minutes. 20 minutes of this. Like, so many pictures, man. So many pictures. And he's calling me by my wife's name, which is Jen. And she's call, he's calling Jen, Jesse. So we've got directions like this, like... Uh, Jen, can you put your head in closer to the left? Or Jesse, push your chin in a little bit more. Just move <laughs> a little bit closer. This was like a giant screwed up game of Simon Says because we had to pay such close attention because what <laughs> would happen is he would say, Jesse, move in closer or Jesse, move to the right. We'd both move to the right. So this dude's like, wow, these guys cannot take instruction. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm talking to one of them and they cannot just take simple instruction. So like there'd be times when he would say, Je uh, Jesse, can you put your chin in? And I would tap my wife and be like, he's talking to you. That's you. That's you. Go, go. So like, <laughs> this was like just incredibly awkward. And so what I'm denying is for whatever reason, this mass confusion with the name Jesse, J-E-S-S-E, as often being a, a female name, even though I, I get that Jesse, J-E-S-S-I-E, or J-E-S-S, Jess can be short for Jessica as like just a nickname, but come on people. Yeah. Jesse is a dude's name. It is biblical. So this was just like, it was epically, it was, I guess it's, it's funny now, but man, I can't tell you how hard we were concentrating and how often like it was this weird game of like trying to make sure that you had to pay attention to what he was saying because you were using the opposite person's name. Like this, that sounds really easy. Go grab a friend, switch your names up and have somebody give you like explicit instructions. It's way more complicated than you think it is. Yeah. So I'm denying that. And then I wanted to ask you because uh, you have a name and have a name. that was all I was going to say about that. And uh, the, at the same time this happened about the same time, I don't know if you saw this thing on Twitter that kind of blew up. Somebody posed the question, what pop culture reference has ruined your name? So in the context of denying this type of thing, let me say mine. And then I'm curious why I talk, if you can think of one for yours, I can kind of think of one for you, but I'm curious what comes to your mind first. So for me, it's undoubtedly the song Jesse's Girl, because within like two seconds of a stranger meeting me, they want to sing that song. Even people like I know that I'm, I'm really well connected with or have deep relationships with, they love to bring up this song. And I encourage anybody, one, to go look at the song because it's awful. The song <laughs> is about taking Jesse's girl. So when people sing that to me, I want to be, I always say like, yo, that's my wife you're talking about there. <laughs> so that song is like kind of clouded my name. It's like the thing yeah. that think people think about when they hear Jesse. Is there something that's equivalent? Like you can go with Tony or Antonio. I don't know if you have a preference there for one or the other or both. Um, you kind of put me on the spot. I don't know. I, Tony's one of those names that's like generic enough that I don't know that there is one. I mean, like the the there's like that old song like Tony 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 has done it again. And when I was in high school, everybody oh, would be true. like Tony Tony that's Tony true. has done it again. And I'm like, shut up. But <laughs> right, I don't, it's that I mean, kind of I don't thing. Know. Yeah, I don't know anything else. Um, what about what about a certain breakfast cereal? Do you ever get associated with that? I mean, I have, but I think it's great. So it's no big deal. <laughs> well, well played. <laughs> Actually, I have a well I have played. a pretty fond affection for Tony the Tiger because when I was young, that was the nickname my mom had for me, and I remember Isn't I had adorable this little Tony the Tiger like radio that still sits in the exact same spot in my bedroom at my parents' house. 
Um, so I don't know that that one never bothered me because it's just it's kind of like a I don't know it's like a like an affectionate diminutive. Well, great! Your name is perfect and untarnished by culture. That's awesome. You know, whenever I think of your name, I think of that commercial where the guy is riding off into the sunset and the it's like that. <laughs> yeah, it's I think Geico. it's like a Geico commercial. And the girl's like, Jesse, don't go. And he's riding off. And then like the words, the end end up and the dude like hits his head on the on the the words as they're floating. The sky gets knocked off his horse. And she's like, Jesse, that's my favorite. My favorite commercial. Yeah, I would gladly take that. If people thought of that when they thought of me, I would be very happy. Instead of this whole song, which is, again, not only do I get the song a lot, I get the song misquoted. A lot of people say, I wish I was Jesse's girl. It's, I wish I had Jesse's girl, which again, you're talking about my wife. Yeah, so either one of those it's, is it's a just bit weird. Uncomfortable. Yeah, it's just, yeah, exactly. It's uncomfortable either way, but that's the thing that's called it. So yeah, names are important people. Yeah. And if you're, if you're a photographer, please, please. Yeah, I use my name for me. I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know what uh, else I was gonna say there. Like, <laughs> I'm I'm kind of at a loss for how that could even happen, and like he probably realized halfway through what was happening. Like, I have to imagine he's going, "What's going on with these Nates? They are like responding the wrong names." And then there was a moment where he's like, "Oh," but then it was like too late for everybody. It was too late. We were in so deep. He was super nice. And we, at that point, we were like, let's just get out of here. It was, this was the strangest picture taking experience I ever had. I don't get like professional pictures taken often or at all, but these were for directory and they knew that. And there yeah. was some like, uh, not, this is already starting to sound like I'm saying risque, not risque pictures, but more like, like at one point he was, he said to uh, Jesse, who was my wife, <laughs> he said, Jesse, can you can you put your hand? Can you put your closed like open hand fingers together? Jesse, can you put your hand on Jen's chest? Which again, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but she did that again. I want to be clear. I want to be clear in this picture that the roles, their names were swapped. So Jen was putting her hand on my chest. That's not. That's not like when I saw it afterwards, I was like, do not put that in a drawer. He's like, do you guys like this one? I was like, no, no. He's like, do you want this one? I was like, I don't want the universe to have any recollection that that picture was ever taken. It's just really strange. It looked like some weird engagement photo that didn't quite happen properly. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, pictorial directories. <laughs> I love the body of Christ. Yes. That's an interesting concept. I don't know. I remember uh, when I was in Minneapolis, the church had one, and I refused to be photographed for it. I was just being like a snot-nosed teenage, like like 19-year-old kid who wanted to buck the system, but I just didn't want to have my picture in the directory. Yeah, this is going to be I – I tell you what. What we should do sometime is when this comes out, we can react to it get together maybe on a podcast because I'm a little bit concerned because I, I saw our picture – and the picture that we ended up with, the one that like looked the most reasonable was like, we are kind of a little bit back to back. I'm, we're leaning into each other and my arms are crossed. And again, it, it looks like this should be an album cover. <laughs> or like a senior so, photo. Yeah. Yeah. Something like, exactly. It's something like that. Like where there's like a super imposed, like large version of my head in one corner. 
and our full bodies in the other. <laughs> it's got that kind of vibe. So here's what I'm concerned about. We, I go to like an amazingly loving, God-honoring, Bible-preaching church, and yet somebody, some new person, some person that maybe is not even a believer, is going to be handed or see a copy of this laying in the church and be like, like flip open the page and be like, we got to get out of here. Look at these people. <laughs> yeah. Look at these people. We got to get out of here. So It is a little weird. It's a strange thing. Love the body of Christ, which probably is like as best we're going to come up with tonight as a segue into <laughs> question cast, because yes. we've got a, a couple of great questions and there's all in the same theme. They have a lot to do with the body of Christ and with children in the body of Christ. So yes. what do you say we drop this first question and like it's hot. Let's do it. All right, here we go. Hey guys, this is Trevor from Northwest Iowa. Uh, long time listener. A long-time pubster. Big fan of you guys and the work that you do. Uh, I do need your help, though. Uh, the church denomination that I belong to, CRCNA, uh, is in many ways a, a wonderful reform body, uh, especially here where I live. Um, but I have more than a few concerns about the current state and future trajectory of the denomination. Uh, but one particular infestation that I want you guys to talk about uh, that's growing in popularity is uh, Pado Communion which they've helpfully, you know, air quotes, renamed children at the table. Uh, so would you guys mind doing your thing and digging into this topic? Uh, I'd love to solidify a biblical stance on this issue. Thanks, guys. I'm glad that Trevor posed this question. It's almost about time, isn't it? Have we had, like, any kind of real pedo-communion discussion in all the time that we've been recording? You know, I don't think we actually have. I think we may have mentioned it very, very briefly on the episode about Federal Vision, but almost in passing. That's what I think, too. So I'm glad that Trevor has brought this to the forefront by just saying, basically, the question is, what does the Bible say about pedo communion? And yeah. he references the church where he's a part of, which is part of the Christian Reformed Church of North America denomination, with this little interest. I love that he's kind of said they've rebranded pedo communion as children at the table. I mean, it does sound like a little bit more welcoming. Right. And so to begin with, we kind of approach this concept. Let's, let me throw out like a definition of terms here, because I want to define this purposefully very narrow. So as to kind of head off, maybe some other type of disagreement with what we're talking about. So to answer Trevor's question, I'm going to define pedal communion as the participation in the Lord's supper by baptized weaned covenant children. And there is a distinction. So here's what's interesting. You and I, we have different convictions, of course, about pedo-baptism. And maybe you run into this more than I do. I've had lots of great conversations with brothers and sisters about pedo-communion, both those kind of trying to understand it, those who come from a tradition that embraces it. And there is a distinction between pedo-baptism and pedo-communion. And Christians sometimes, of course, they impose this same kind of reasoning in justifying pedo-communion as pedo-baptists use sometimes in justifying pedo-baptism. This idea, and again, this is, I'm going to say this is somewhat pejorative, but I'm trying to really hone or funnel this down to a specific argument, that because the Passover has replaced the Lord's Supper, the children in the Old Testament, and the children in the Old Testament ate of the Passover, then it necessarily follows that children in the New Testament may take part in the Lord's Supper. So let, let's like stop there for a second and like just dialogue a bit before we get into like some of the scripture in terms of... Do you often run into like, what kind of argumentation are people using, generally speaking, yeah. as yeah. to embrace pedo communion? Yeah, I mean, so I mentioned the association with federal vision, and the reason for that is these, these two theologies go hand in hand. So the federal vision places an overemphasis on the efficacy of, um, of 
baptism to bring someone into not only the administration of the covenant of grace, but also the substance of the covenant of grace. So I'm actually, that book I referenced a couple of weeks ago, the, the Baptist federal theology one by um, Denault Pascal, Pascal Denault. Denault Pascal. I don't know. Just look it up. You'd think I would remember it, but um, <laughs> that's great. I love so it. he makes a really good point in that book. And the whole book is designed around kind of drawing out this distinction that the, the Presbyterians of the 16th and 17th century, they argued that there's this sort of double way of being uh, invested or interested or involved in the covenant of grace. You can be involved in the covenant of grace externally so anyone who has made a profession of faith, who was born uh, to Christian parents, who is somehow connected to the church and part of that community is uh, outwardly a part of the covenant of grace. So they right. would view the visible church and covenant grace membership as uh, one in the same thing in terms of the outward appearances. But then you can be involved in the covenant of grace or interested in the covenant of grace internally as well. And, and the difference is, the substance of the covenant of grace is Jesus Christ himself. And so when you're invested in the externals of the covenant of grace, you have a, an outward or a nominal attachment to Jesus Christ. So you, you consider yourself to be a Christian, you call yourself to be a Christian, um, you bear the name of Christian, you're part of the church. If you have an investment in the substance of the covenant of grace, then you're in an actual saving union with Jesus Christ. And so where the federal vision particularly goes wrong is they uh, they too closely associate those two things. So they, they would say that if you are part of the visible church, that you are in some sense uh, partaking of the substance of the covenant of grace as well. Right. And so the, the difference, and we'll get into specifically why this is in Presbyterian theology, but in federal vision theology, what they've done is they've taken baptism and they say, all right, baptism has an effect, and that effect is to unite someone to the actual substance of the covenant of grace, where the, right. the traditional Presbyterian perspective is that baptism unites someone to the external administration of the covenant of grace, but not necessarily to the substance of the covenant of grace. And so the logic in the federal vision articulation is that since a person has been connected to the substance of the covenant of grace, they should partake of the sacrament which also is associated with the sub or with the substance of the covenant of grace where where right. the presbyterian position pushes back the the orthodox presbyterian position is that baptism only uh, necessarily unites you to the external uh, administration of the covenant of grace. And only those who we have a reason to believe, a positive reason to believe, are also united to Christ in the substance of the covenant of grace as well, not only the administration, should partake of the uh, sacrament of communion. So typically you hear the argument, either from federal visionists who are making this argument, like if they're a Christian, they should do everything a Christian does, which isn't exactly what the Presbyterian is trying to say. Um, or you hear it from Baptists who I think most of the time misunderstand that distinction a little bit and say, well, you're treating them as a Christian. You're treating them as though they're part of the visible church. So you should you should go all the way and treat them like they're part of the visible church and give them the sacrament as well. And so both both the federal vision uh, and the Baptist interlocutor who's trying to say trying to make this argument are actually making the same argument based more or less on the same misunderstanding of classical Presbyterian theology. 
Right. Yeah. That, and that's what I wanted to emphasize is that you can't use the same argument for both. So if you're having a discussion, somebody's trying to leverage the argument for baptism in the same way for papal communion, they can't. And so, again, even though my convictions are different, the Presbyterian logic, like the a priori approach toward pedobaptism, baptism, I think is cogent in what it's expressing. But you can't use that and apply it toward papal communion. And to help Trevor out, I think, it's probably best for us to go to the scripture and see that there is some really straightforward acknowledgement and instruction on this particular issue when it reverts to the Lord's Supper. And the great thing about this is it's found in 1 Corinthians, of course, and this is probably something that everybody's heard before and maybe not thought about exactly in these terms. But breaking down 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 27 through 30, I think would be profitable. And the reason is because we need to remember first that Paul is writing to a very troubled church. He is correcting and actually providing very explicit and specific instruction when it comes to the administration of the Lord's Supper. And there's a lot I think we can glean with respect to answering this question, that what then does the Bible say about Pedo communion? So let me read just uh, from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 through 30. And this is coming from the NASB, which again, you can get from that literal word app, because I think this is, again, we're looking at instruction here. So I think if we can go to something that's the most literal translation in English, we'll get a better sense of what's happening here. This is what Paul writes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number are asleep. So the standard interpretation of these verses that I want to talk about is that Paul warns the Corinthians that they're to examine themselves, of course, when taking part of the Lord's Supper, basically that they shouldn't do it in this kind of hastily irreverent way they've been doing before. Don't treat it like this is just a common meal. And instead, you should make sure that your conscience is right with God and with fellow believers. And that's clearly what's being taught in verse 28 there. So in verse 29, the word body is assumed to refer to Christ's body as in the bread of communion. So the argument right. follows that since children are too young and immature to examine themselves, they ought to wait until they have made a profession of faith before taking part in the Lord's Supper. Yeah. And, you know, this this ties into um, usually a, a misunderstanding of how Presbyterian uh, federal theology and this concept of type and shadow works. So the right. argument, you know, the argument, well, baptism is the replacement or the, the fulfillment of circumcision and uh, the Lord's Supper is the fulfillment of Passover. Therefore, you know, we, we baptize children and we should let them have communion. What, what the problem with that is, is that baptism does replace circumcision as the initiation into the covenant. The external initiation into the administration of the covenant. But the Lord's Supper does not directly replace or fulfill Passover in the same way or the same sense. So where in, in baptism and circumcision, they both accomplish the same thing uh, under different administrations. They both initiate the circumcised or baptized person into the covenant of grace in Presbyterian theology. Um, the the sacrament of Passover is a typological sign which points forward to the uh, the coming of the Messiah and what he would accomplish on behalf of his people. Um, 
the sacrament of the Lord's Supper points backwards to the same thing, but it's not as though um, the the Passover is replaced by um, by the Lord's Supper in a direct sense, the same way that circumcision and baptism is. They're both pointing at the same reality. They're they're pointing at them from different directions, and. The main thing is exactly as you've said, right? We have different instructions, different kinds of instructions for the sacraments, right? Exactly. Baptism is, from a Presbyterian perspective, is to be applied to all of those who are a part of the external uh, covenant of grace. And, and it's what initiates them into that external administration of the covenant of grace. And so it's important to, to draw that distinction in terms of what is the covenant of grace and who is externally united to it. Baptists deny this concept of an external only uh, administration of the covenant of grace. They, they deny that category entirely. So you have to understand the Presbyterian perspective on baptism. But then when you get to uh, the Lord's Supper, we have this specific set of instructions that delineates who is to partake of the uh, of the, the Lord's Supper. And there's there's two distinct distinctions. There's those who are, are able to examine themselves and there are those who are able to properly discern the body. So any right. person who is not able to examine themselves or not able to properly discern the body should be restrained from the table. Now that is primarily in Presbyterian theology, primarily is applied to children. And this is going to ruffle some feathers. And this is obviously up to the local session to make a determination, but there might be some adults who lack sufficient capacity to properly discern the body of Christ that should also be held back from the body uh, or from the, the table. And, you know, sometimes uh, we allow someone who's made a profession of faith that we believe to be a genuine profession of faith. We sort of discern the body for them. And when I say we, I mean like the elders of the church. I'm not I'm not an elder of the church, but this the local session kind of discerns the body for them and discerns whether they're eating worthily for them based on their knowledge of that person's life and their uh, their profession of faith and their conduct um, and their capacities. So right. we have to recognize the different sacraments have different instructions and different uh, different audiences, more or less. That's right on. That that's a great summary. What you ha what has to happen here is for Trevor's sake, because he's having these discussions and kind of sorting this out in his own local congregation, in order to support Pedal Communion, you have to interpret those set of verses, those instructions as you just laid out, differently. And to me, it comes down to one word. This is the word that often gets thrown up. So in regard to verse 28, the let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we're all going to agree on that, more or less, with the standard interpretation of that view. However, the advocate of Pedal Communion must believe that in verse 29, the word body refers not to the body of Christ, but to the church body. That's right. the only way you can interpret these verses and support Pedal Communion. Because they're going to point to passages in the same book, like 1 Corinthians 12, 27, which is the one we're familiar with when Paul's talking about the, the church itself. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. They're going to use verses like that to demonstrate that Paul sometimes uses the word body to refer to the church members. And that's true. He sometimes does. And so on this basis, they're going to argue that Paul is simply telling the Corinthians to watch for one another and be considerate of one another's right. needs before taking the Lord's Supper so that they don't all eat at the same time, lest one goes hungry, another gets drunk, or they, you know, they end up just turning it into straight up shenanigans and debauchery. 
that's also something Paul does address. But I think if I were to evaluate what we've just said, what you just said, the argument, the scripture itself, the problem is the interpretation of this from a penal community perspective is weak and it just lacks contextual consistency with respect to 1 Corinthians 11. Because if the only evil of the Corinthians was in failing to be considerate for one another, it seems unreasonable and unmeasured consequence that many among them were weak and sick and dead. So it's more likely, of course, that just in context, body in verse 29 is referring to Christ's spiritual body in the element of the bread, not only because it is last repeated in verse 28, like it's literally there in the verse preceding it, but because a disrespect of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice by reprobate would be indeed enough of a sacrilege to deserve death. I mean, that's exactly what it was, for instance, for the two sons of Aaron. So right. I think the argument is very weak and the onus is on those who subscribe to that view to make a strong case from the scriptures, because unlike many other areas where there's room for a lot of debate here, I think Paul is being very, very clear about who should participate in the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Yeah. I want to read this question from uh, the Westminster Larger Catechism, because I think this kind of um, sums up the, the main answer to this question. And it's question 177. And it says, wherein do the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper differ? And the answer is the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper differ in that baptism is to be administered but once with water to be a sign and seal of our regeneration and ingrafting into Christ. And that even to infants, whereas the Lord's Supper is to be administered often in the elements of bread and wine to represent and exhibit Christ as spiritual nourishment to the soul and to confirm our continuance and growth in him. And that only to such as are of years and ability to examine themselves. And here's where it's important is the the difference between the two sacraments, at least in part, has to do with what they signify. So baptism signifies the initiation into the covenant, whereas the right. Lord's Supper here signifies, quote, Christ as spiritual nourishment to the soul. And so when we are uh, we are taking the Lord's Supper, we're signifying that Christ is a spiritual nourishment to our soul. Now, the problem with that is that those who are not in uh, union with Christ, who have we have no reason to, to really think are in a vital, um, uh, substantial union with Christ, he's not nourishing their souls, right? So, so right. baptism is the sign that someone is outwardly a part of the covenant. It signs and seals regeneration, among other things, uh, as a promise of those things, not necessarily as the accomplishment of those things. So baptism exactly. is a sign that points to a future reality or to a reality that is present, but it points to a regeneration. Um, so it, it necessarily is applied to those who either are new in the faith or are not of the faith yet, at least from a Presbyterian model. But the fact that, that the Lord's Supper signifies and is the means by which we actually feast on Christ and are nourished by him spiritually, those who are not being nourished by him spiritually are not the proper recipients of the sacrament. And, and I think, like I said, this all, this all comes down and, and I don't know all of the ins and outs of the uh, Christian Reformed Church of North America, the reason they allow for pedo communion. I know that as a general uh, assembly or as a synod, they have allowed uh, individual um, 
individual churches to make a determination on this. I don't know all the reasoning behind that, but I know that uh, there are certain influences that the CREC has, which is Doug Wilson's denomination. It's very federal vision driven. Um, they've right. made inroads into a lot of these other Presbyterian reform denominations. And so this is kind of a hard, um, sort of a hard statement. But, you know, when we talk about the marks of the church, we talk about the the proper preaching of the word, the proper administration of the sacraments and the proper discipline of the church. And the proper discipline of the church is part of the proper administration of the sacraments. And the primary right. way that the church executes discipline is by properly fencing the Lord's table. And so I actually am of the opinion that if you are, you find yourself in a church that practices uh pedo communion, you're actually in a church that is on the cusp of being no church at all. Because it's no longer fencing the, 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 the table properly. It's no longer properly administering uh, and, and fencing and disciplining the table. It's actually gone into something else where it's defined who and what the visible and invisible church is in a different way. And how you become a part of and stay a part of that visible or invisible church. It's totally redefined those realities. Exactly. And so I would actually say that if you find yourself in a church that practices pedo communion, you probably should begin to look for a new church. Outside of Christ himself, there's almost no other thing which categorically divine defines the church than what you've just set forth there. Exactly. So this is a very serious matter. And uh, let me read something to kind of hopefully close us out with respect to this question, because Trevor, if you're looking for another good resource, maybe even to use in discussion with some of your elders, one of the best I can point to in terms of just summarizing what we've said in language that's far better than the ones which we've actually used, and probably we should have just read this instead of talked, is Calvin's Institutes, because yeah. he speaks about this at length. And this is somewhat lengthy passage, but I think it's worth reading. And he's going to start by referring to the distinction. He's talking about the distinction, Tony, that you just mentioned between paedo-baptism and paedo-communion. But here's what he says. The distinction is very clearly shown in Scripture. For with respect to baptism, the Lord there sets no definite age, but he does not similarly hold forth the supper for all to partake of, but only for those who are capable of discerning the body and the blood of the Lord, of examining their own conscience, of proclaiming the Lord's death, and of considering its power. Do we wish anything plainer than the apostle's teaching when he exhorts each man to prove and search himself than to eat of this bread and drink of this cup? A self-examination ought therefore to come first, and it is vain to expect this of infants. Again, he who eats unworthily eats and drinks condemnation for himself, not discerning the body of the Lord. If only those who know how to distinguish rightly the holiness of Christ's body are able to participate worthily, why should we offer poison instead of life-giving food to our tender children? What is it that command of the Lord, do this in remembrance of me? What is that other command which the apostle derives from it? As often as you eat this bread, you will proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What remembrance of this thing, I ask, shall we require of infants when they have never grasped it? What preaching of the cross of Christ, the force and benefit of which their minds have yet not comprehended, none of these things is prescribed in baptism. Accordingly, there is a very great difference between these two signs, as we have noted in like signs also under the Old Testament. Circumcision, which is known to correspond to our baptism, had been appointed for infants, but the Passover, the place of which has been taken by the supper, did not admit all guests indiscriminately 
but was duly eaten only by those who were old enough to be able to inquire into its meaning. If these men had a particular of sound brain left, a particle rather of sound brain left, would they be blind to a thing so clear and obvious? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> nothing nothing uh, like Calvin to just put a question to rest. Boom. Definitive answer from Calvin. You got another one in you? Are you ready for one more? Let's do it. Hi there. My name is Luke, and I'm from Michigan. I was just listening to your podcasts on Pelagianism. Really fantastic discussion going on. I did have a question, though. You were talking about the age of innocence in children. And I know that I've heard John MacArthur on more than one occasion uh, point out the passage in Jeremiah 19, which is talking about the guilt of the people who uh, have profaned the temple and profaned the worship of God. And then he points out that these people have forsaken me, have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods who they neither, nor their fathers nor their kings of Judah have known. And because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence and have built the high places of Baal to turn their sons in fire as burnt offerings to Baal. So uh, it's a reference he's saying to um, child sacrifice, to infant sacrifice. And his point, MacArthur's point, is that God, speaking through Jeremiah, calls these infants innocents, uh, the innocents. Um, do you have any comments on that as far as how it relates to Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, how it relates to this concept of an age of innocence? Is there more that he's reading into the passage than is really there? Or uh, is there any validity or is there any anything to be said positively of MacArthur's interpretation of of that? Thank you very much. Another great question, again, in the same vein of understanding children and the family of God. And this is on the heels, as Luke said, of our conversation about Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism, which I think has been a reoccurring theme. Who knows what episode that was? We talk about that all the time. So his question basically is that John MacArthur sometimes references Jeremiah 19, specifically verses 4 and 5, to at least make the statement, that speaking through Jeremiah, God is referring to infants as innocent. And what's interesting about Luke's question in particular is, first, I think it's a bit about how do we evaluate MacArthur's argument? And does it promulgate some kind of age of innocence? And then even beyond that, does this affirm Pelagian or semi-Pelagian theology? Not that MacArthur is affirming that, but could somebody perhaps use that kind of argumentation? And you know, my initial thought when I heard this question is, wow, this is great. This is something we definitely have to talk about. It seemed complex. And at the same time, I don't know how you feel about it. It seemed like the answer was right in front of us and very straightforward in the sense that when we hear something like this, when we see a particular verse taken out for us to understand and try to comprehend, the first thing we really should do in a question with a question like this is understand, I think, what the scripture says in its entirety about this right. particular subject. Yeah. And the first thing that comes to my mind, because I think the scripture makes it very plain, is that the Bible conveys a super sinister reality when it comes to kids. And maybe we are not parents, uh, either you or I together, or you and I separately in our families. I want to make that clear. <laughs> um, that the, the reality the Bible says is that the children may be unknowing and naive, 
but they've never been innocent. Right. So just like ourselves, they're guilty and depraved. I think of what Robert Murray McShay once wrote about how the seed of every known sin is planted in our hearts. So the truth, even at the outset, I think of this question, the truth for me is, is not merely that if things work out badly for children, like they may drift spiritually and morally, the drive to do so is already embedded in all of our hearts. And all that's required for that tragic harvest is that we just allow ourselves to give expression to our heart's desires. So I love what Louis Burkhoff said about children and total depravity. He says, inherent corruption extends to every part of nature, to all the faculties and powers of both soul and body, and that there is no spiritual good in the sinner at all, but only perversion. So the, I think we have to start from this perspective that we know clearly that the Bible says that total, the total depravity of children is a faith doctrine. It's a biblical insight. So for me, that starts us off in this path that what those verses could be saying is not exactly what they're being taken to mean, at least as MacArthur is expressing it through Luke's question. Yeah. I mean, on one level, um, how do I say this? Uh, there's not really a way to say this gently. This is just, just a really stupid argument. Like <laughs> this is just a dumb, like this is, this True. is one of those arguments that is made. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for MacArthur as a biblical expositor. I know you do. For the most part, everything he, he says is solid. He's a faithful expositor. But honestly, like this argument, and I've never heard MacArthur make this argument himself uh, directly. So I'm extrapolating a little bit. But this is an argument that just to me smacks of just reaching for something in the scripture that tangentially affirms what you've already said. So I'm just going to read the passage here. Um, have you heard MacArthur make this argument directly? So I haven't either. And so I'm, I appreciate that Luke has brought this up and he had mentioned that he's heard it a couple of different times. And maybe MacArthur is making more of a statement about Asian majority or just reemphasizing that what's happening here is so grievous to God because we're talking about children, not that are innocent, but don't deserve the kind of punishment that might be befitting of a criminal who is getting executed. Yeah. But either way, I think it's, I haven't really heard it explicitly. I think it's best, like you said, to read the, that passage of scripture there. So everybody kind of hear the context in which this is coming out. Yeah. So let me read it and then I'll explain what I assume to be MacArthur's argument. And if I'm wrong and I'm misrepresenting it or, or I can't be misrepresenting it because I'm totally guessing, but we'll see how I do. Um, it says here, starting in verse four, because the people have forsaken me and profane this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known. And because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence and have built high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come to my mind. So. I'm assuming that the argument he's making is that those who are being sacrificed uh, are infants and, and God calls right. them innocent here. Um, there's probably more to the argument, but I think that's probably the basic argument he makes. And the scripture all over the place uses this language of relative innocence or relative blamelessness all over the place and nowhere else. Exactly. Right. MacArthur's not going to look at, uh, Job, the beginning of Job and say, Job was a sinless man, right? He's not going to look at it and say, because the scripture says he was upright. The scripture says he was upright. Like no one else was, um, and blameless. He's not going to look at that and say, therefore Job 
was innocent. Therefore, Job did not have personal sin and was not personally worthy of condemnation. Um, he's just not going to say that. So this whole idea that like, because the scripture calls an infant innocent in this passage, that that means that somehow they're innocent, uh, in terms of personal sin. Um, it, it just doesn't square up with the rest of the scripture. You have to have a faulty hermeneutic where you interpret the same kind of data in different ways. And, you know, in the semi-Pelagianism or the Pelagianism episode, which was in our heresy cast series, I did make some provocative statements that the way that particularly dispensationalists um, address the idea of infants dying in infancy and justify the idea that they are not condemned. The way they do that typically is to say that they inherit uh, the corporate guilt or the corporate corruption of Adam's sin, but they do not have any personal moral sin of their own. And so right. therefore it would not be proper for God to punish them uh, for moral sin. And so the, the problem is, and this makes sense from a dispensationalist framework, right? If you deny the covenant of works and you deny the federal headship of Adam over all humanity in the covenant of works, then of course, a person who's not born under that same dispensation is not held to the same standard. And so the, the guilt of Adam's sin is not transmitted from generation to generation the way that it is in covenant theology. Rather, his corruption is in a sort of biological hereditary sense. And so MacArthur or Todd Friel, I've heard it out of lots of other dispensationalists, would make the argument that the infants who die in infancy have not committed any personal sin. Thus, God has nothing to punish them for. Even right. though we might say in some alternative sense that they are indeed sinners who suffer from total depravity, they redefine total depravity to be simply a propensity for sin rather than the actual guilt of Adam's original sin, which is how both Reformed Baptists and Reformed Presbyterians have always understood uh, total depravity and original sin to function. That's a crazy amount of parsing, though, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an insane amount because I just don't think that that's really supported biblically. I actually think that the, the mere death of infants totally unwinds and destroys the Pelagian and semi-Pelagian argument. And the only reason, and I think they realize this too, which is why they have to go through these gymnastics to somehow emphasize that the sin that we're talking about here is some kind of like semi-corruption. Like it exists in merely like an intellectual realm, but not in like an actual reality. Right. And that's the problem. It's like, they know better too, because we have to ask, how can it be? Like you said, that if we're going to make the case that Adam is the federal head imputed some kind of sin, so to speak, or imparted some kind of sin to us because we, he was our representative. Then we have to ask, well, how did it become embedded in human nature? And so Paul, of course, goes to great length to explain that the unity of the human race is reflected with Adam and in Adam. So sin entered the world through him and then death followed. I think we often forget that like death followed sin. So all sinned in Adam because he was the representative head of the whole of humanity. And the proof of the pudding is seen in the way that death spread to all and reigned over all of them. That's why Paul adds, even those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, that is those who had not been recipients of the verbal revelation of God's will, were still covered under the same trespasses and curse. So in other words, here's where I think it just destroys semi-Pelagianism. Death is not the result from, of natural cause. So 
Paul may not be thinking here like exclusively of infants, but no class of person more clearly illustrates in my mind the terrible consequence of the fall than do infants who die before they're even able right. or capable of understanding God's command. This just shows the depth, the pervasiveness, the ubiquity of true sin that is like pervasive, total depravity that children, innocent children in the sense that relatively speaking, of course, that those who have not even had the chance to comprehend this could die. The reason they are dying is because they are sinners. Right. So that, that's why I think like MacArthur is trying to parse out the details if this is in fact his argument, because what he's recognizing is that they're in as a punishment for sin, but he only wants to take that so far. Like he recognizes he can't run from this biblical truth, which is children die because of sin. Right. Yeah. And you know, just on another level, um, you know, sometimes people lose sight of the fact that um, those who are apart from Christ, and, and I would say even those who are united to Christ, never go a single moment without sinning, right? So sure. even if we say, even if in some hypothetical scenario, we were to say that infants were only born with the propensity to sin and the inability to uh, to merit positive righteousness. Even if we were to take out uh, the the transmission of Adam's guilt in addition to his corruption, that corruption results in, in infants sinning from the very moment of conception in that even in that state of, of moral ignorance or moral uh, unawareness, they still are failing to love the Lord, their God with their heart and soul, with all their heart and soul and mind. And They're so being. it's not as though, um, you know, you only have to love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind when you are old enough to articulate that. And so, right. you know, if, if, uh, we affirm what we do about the constitution of humanity, um, whatever it means for, uh, a fertilized egg that is two cells, right? The, the the sperm and the egg unite, and then there's a division and there's two cells. And we have a full human being that is made in the image of God. Whatever it would mean for that two cells to not love the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and mind, they're, do, they're failing to do that. And so even at that earliest possible stage of development, that baby is still not only guilty of Adam's sin, but now also has personal sin of their own. So right. the whole idea, and this this is why I made the argument um, that MacArthur's position is a species of semi-Pelagianism, in that semi-Pelagianism argues that human, human nature is corrupted, that we need God's assistance in order to make a profession of faith, but that we're not incapable of doing spiritual good apart from God, um, just we're incapable of making a saving decision or, or obtaining saving merit. But the element of it that is semi-Pelagian is that MacArthur and others who articulate this kind of uh, age of innocence theology, although I don't think they would call it that, um, right. they articulate this idea that humans are born in a state where they have not inherited the actual guilt of Adam's sin. So that's the first thing, which which we deny, both Reformed Baptists and Reformed Presbyterians would deny. But Amen. also, they deny that that the human is actively sinning against God at every stage of life. There's never a time in existence for a human where they do not do that. And that's where, you know, this is where it comes into Christology. That's the miracle of the incarnation. That's right. the miracle of Christ's human nature being sanctified initially 
in its initial creation, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, the fact that the Holy Spirit immediately created the human nature of Christ, uh, superintending it and protecting him from original sin, that's part of the miracle of the incarnation, is that even as two cells in Mary's womb, he was loving the Lord his God with all his heart and soul and mind. Whereas we were never loving the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind. So... Well, I can kind of understand the impulse for why MacArthur and others want to make this argument. Um, It really does rest on some semi-Pelagian models, and it rests on a dispensational kind of theology that that covenant theology has always rejected, right? We've always said we inherit both the guilt and the corruption of Adam's first sin. And this is why I said at the top of this that the question seems both complex and straightforward because I think we both agree that there just is no age of innocence. Right. So the answer to that question in some respects, at least from my perspective is what well, just doesn't exist. So even outside of the way that this verse is being applied, there is just no such thing. It's a category that's nonsensical, like country music. It just doesn't make any sense. It, it yeah. shouldn't be together. Yeah. Um, apparently you like country music cause you were just not, you're just not plus by that. No, I, I hate country music. Oh, okay, great. All I, right, we're I, on the same page there. There's no reason for me to push against your statement when it's true. <laughs> Cue the hate mail. But the other thing that's interesting about this, and this is, I think, like to your point, what we're trying to say here is there's more than one on-ramp to the highway of Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism. And I think a lot of people think the only on-ramp is through the Ordo Salutis. Like you have X Ordo Salutis, that means you're Pelagian or semi-Pelagian. What we're kind of emphasizing here is the way you think about sin itself and this idea of age of innocence may be putting you right on that highway without you even realizing it. There are other points of entry. And this one seems to be, I think, one that often people fall into. And when we talked about Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism and infants at some other point, I know we said this before, I, my conviction is like you don't want to be here. You really don't want to be in here and considering the age of innocence. I know that that's not uh, where Luke is at. I, I think that this is just an unsatisfying argument. One, because you're not going to find biblical parity with it. And the second is because when you have that moment, when you're suffering through a kind of loss, that is the loss of a loved one who is little and small, and again, relatively or comparatively innocent, The most discomforting thing, which again cannot be pulled from the Bible, is for somebody to say, well, I'm a Pelagian or semi-Pelagian and uh, I have no category for what's just happened here because the God that I understand in the way that I understand him cannot save this child without the child's help or at best he can override it in certain circumstances. Whereas what we're saying, I think you and I, our shared conviction is no, God is sovereign over all things. He saves those whom he will, and he has the power and he will execute that power for the good of his people, for the glory of Christ, to save those. And I think you and I both have a conviction that oftentimes that is children. And what struck me about one of the things you said is that we're taking a very, I think, biblically extreme perspective on this in that we're not saying that babies are sinful. We're saying that from conception, we are sinful. Right. From the very, very beginning, we are sinful. There is no other time. There is no age of innocence. There's no like interutero age of innocence from the very right. start of life itself. Because we have inherited that from Adam, who is our federal head, we are always in nothing but sinful until God, who is rich in mercy, comes and saves us. So it's not, 
elevating ourselves to the place of deserving poor. It's not coming forward with empty hands. It's not bringing ourselves to the altar and saying, God, I accept you. That's never the case. And actually, in recognizing that that's not the case, I think we find great freedom in knowing that it is God who saves us, who holds us, who takes our destiny, and is able to secure it for our good and for his glory. Yeah. Yeah, the the reformed position, and I say that with... Uh, every possible understanding of what it really means to be reformed. The reformed position is that humans never exist in a state of sinlessness, period, full stop, right? Whatever it means for a human to exist in uh, in a post-fall world, that is a sinful state. So the age of innocence right. is zero, right? So we, we just have to get that straight. And I know that that's a hard, um, a hard pill to swallow, right? It's not uh, pleasant to think about the fact that um, babies in the womb are sinning against the Lord, right? That's not a pleasant thing. Uh, it's not pleasant to talk about the fact that a one-year-old uh, and a 50-year-old both deserve to be punished by God for all eternity, right? That's not pleasant, but that's reality, that's what it is. And we as reformed Christians believe that's what the Bible teaches. And so we have to follow the Bible where it goes. We don't have the liberty to just right. sort of say, well, you know, total depravity and everything and original sin and everything, except for babies, right? Except for babies, babies who die in infancy, they don't have original sin. We just don't have the liberty to say that. And like I said, I, I haven't read MacArthur directly on this, but just glancing through what I can find on the internet, I'm seeing lots of people making similar arguments with this passage that that God refers to them as, infant, as innocent here, therefore they must not have moral sin on their hands. That's just a stretch argument. It's a reach trying to justify a position you already hold. It's, it's theology by lexicon, and that's just not how we do right. theology. It just isn't. Right. There's just, I think, not any room with respect to what God's word says about sinfulness. And I think what happens with arguments like this is we try to import some of what we believe is just tolerant, good-hearted human nature, with, especially with respect to kids. Because who doesn't look at a child and just beam with it like the excitement of a little one? Or reflect on the fact that here is a young life that is yet in some ways like unsoiled by expectation or by, you know, perversion of experience or by the commission uh, volitionally of bad behavior. And yet what's funny is, again, though I do not have kids, all, all my good friends who have young children are so quick to tell me that like from a very early age, like as soon as like even any personality is evident, they are clear that they are sinful beings right. because they find a way to be manipulative. And of course that doesn't deter them from loving them. Right. It's just a statement of fact of nature. Nobody needs to teach them from a young age that they can be manipulative in how they cry or whine or the noises they make or all these things become very plain, I think to most parents even from a very early age. So when Paul says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that is without equivocation because he was a smart dude. Right. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit. If there were going to be caveats to that, surely that would have been the moment <laughs> for right. God to say, let me give you the exclusion list real quick so yeah. you don't get this twisted. Yep. 
And so it's just a really profound and deep truth. But I think that should leave us, lead us and leave us in this space of profound doxology for praising a God who understands us. And from the beginning, when we were sinful, while we were yet his enemies, he sent Christ to die for us. Yeah. And so in that death, we receive the kind of regeneration that we could never earn, never manufacture on ourselves because we were lost to begin with. So I actually take a strange amount of wonderful comfort from questions like these, because what Trevor and Luke have posed, I think, are the things that the body of Christ should be wrestling with, yeah. should really be talking about, because this makes the biggest difference. And because there's two things in life, in my opinion, that people get fired up about and often have the least control of, and that is money and their children. Yeah. So we really need to be practical about how theology in- instructs us through right thinking into right living, especially when it comes to kids. Yeah. One last thought, and then we can wrap up. You know, you, you quoted uh, Romans 5, 8 there, that God demonstrates his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? Um, right. Or, or the scripture says that uh, we were enemies of God and, and Christ died for us anyways. Yes. And the fact is that if you believe uh, that your child is saved, uh, that they're saved by Christ, by Christ's sacrifice on the cross... Uh, then you believe that while they were still sinners, while they were enemies of God, Christ died for them. So you can't hold that they were not enemies of God because they were innocent, but also Christ died for them at the same time. And, And that's just, that's what it is. And like I said, it's not pleasant. It's not a happy thought. Um, but what is a happy thought is that we serve a good God who sent us a good savior who saved not only those who could make an outward profession of faith, but also all those whom he would give a secret internal faith to and regenerate them and save them even in their infancy. Um, so we, we can trust and have confidence that God is good and that he's done the right thing. And that even though we may not understand what it means for God to have regenerated a, a young child or an infant or a baby who has yet to leave his, his or her mother's womb. We may not understand what it means for that person to have been regenerated and granted faith by the Holy spirit. We still understand that it is so, and that God saves those whom he chose and regenerates. There's always going to be questions in theology. And that's part of the reason why you and I get together and have these wonderful conversations is there's always things to ask. And sometimes, you know, like when you really dive into something in a theological frame of mind, you find that by answering one question, there's like five more behind it. Yeah. And this can be one of those places. What's super comforting, though, is every theological perspective has its own questions that must grapple with. But in the Reformed tradition, what you described, there's no question there. And that's a beautiful thing, I think. We, we have questions that we need to answer the things that are mysterious. But in this idea of like, well, how can God save a baby? We have a very clear answer that is from the scriptures on yeah. that. And I think that at the end of the day, in the final analysis, is an absolutely glorious thing. Yeah, praise God. Jesse, this has been another, uh, I think, successful question cast. Would you go as far to use the word definitive Uh, with respect to this At least until the next time we do question cast, yeah. (laughs) I think so. I just like to throw that out there. Now that's my tradition, because I sense it like you're a little uncomfortable with me calling (laughs) everything we do definitive. So now I just love to throw it out. Yeah, it makes me feel a little awkward. So let's go with this before we close. Let's remind people, how can they leave voicemails like Trevor and Luke leave, left us? What can they do to make that happen? Uh, you can call 607-444-2767. 
and Bruce. leave us a voicemail. Uh, if you live somewhere where you cannot call that phone number, you can record an audio file and email it to info at reformbrotherhood.com. Uh, you can also send us an email at info at reformbrotherhood.com. Although, uh, disclaimer or disclosure, rather, we do give privilege to those who have left us audio format questions of some sort. So get your voice in there. Thanks to those fine brothers for leaving those questions. I think they're very honest, very thoughtful, very helpful. And I really thought that when you said, if you can't call the number, I thought you were going to invite people to come find us. I thought you were about to give out some addresses. And I was like, oh, whoa, whoa. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> no, no. There's a lot of crazy people Tony. out there. I don't want my address floating around the internet. <laughs> Although it probably wouldn't be terribly difficult to find me now that I think about it. You're famous. Yeah. I don't know if I'm famous, but there's a lot of info about me on the internet. So does that make me famous, famous if there's a lot of it, a lot of information out there about me? Yeah, that's true. Okay. Well, I'll take I'm it. I'm bombarded by information about you on the internet all the time. Yeah. You know, speaking of information on the internet and that uh, you have you been pwned email, I got an email from Google the other day that said somebody tried to log into my account from Nigeria. So I had to go change all my you? passwords. Yeah. No, that wasn't me. <laughs> so I've been pwned, apparently. <laughs> apparently so. Well, hopefully it's just because they're listening to the podcast and had a question for there us. There you go. Yeah. All righty. Jesse, why don't you take us home? All right. This has been great. Thanks, Tony, for tackling some questions with me. I always enjoy these casts. And next week, we'll be back at it with the Book of Micah. Nice. I thought maybe you were going to have some excitement there. It's going to be great, despite <laughs> the lack of excitement we just showed right there. So until then, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.